Let's be real. Lawsuits are no fun, but with Paulson and Nace, at least they are a little easier. With two DC-born partners, Paulson and Nace will fight for you the way only a Washingtonian could. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, and other complex injury cases involving negligence. So if you have been hurt or lost a loved one because of someone else's mistake or negligence, call Paulson and Nace for a no-obligation consultation. Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. Here's what DC's talking about. Today on CityCast DC, there are so many pieces of media that take place in DC. Some good, some bad, and some totally cringy. So in this new series, CityCast DC co-host Mike Schaefer and I are looking back at some famous portrayals of DC and media to break down how they depict our city. Starting with the iconic 80s Mr. T classic, DC Cab, where a group of ragtag DC cab drivers try to keep their struggling cab company afloat while solving a kidnapping on the side. Today is Tuesday, March 28th. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is CityCast DC. Welcome to the inaugural episode of our CityCast DC, CCDC Rewatch and Reread series. Bridget Todd, my awesome co-host, here's a, a secret. She is an almost English PhD student. Uh, <laughs> a dropout, a PhD dropout. I was saying it in a nice way. But the point <laughs> is, she's really smart about things like books and, and movies. And we're going to reward her for her smartness by discussing a movie that is not traditionally intellectual fare, but it is deeply DC fare, which is the 1983 film DC Cab. Oh, this is exactly what I thought I would be doing with a PhD, talking about DC Cab in 2023 on a podcast. The semiotics of Mr. T. So what made you want to start with DC Cab as the inaugural CCDC rewatch movie? I don't know. This one, it came out when I was like 10 and, you know, it was actually shot here. You know, it's not like one of these ones which is shot in Vancouver and you see like mountains in the background or something. And, you know, it captured on film a very different DC than the one we live in. Also, it has Mr. T and Bill Maher and Paul Rodriguez and a theme song by Irene Cara. And it's got camp value, if nothing else. It was rushed into theaters like four months ahead of schedule because at the time, Mr. T's show, The A-Team, had debuted as like the number one show in the country. And Irene Cara had a hit song, Flashdance, that was the top song in the country. And they thought, we've got to capitalize on this. I don't know if the extra four months of work could necessarily have like saved the movie, <laughs> but I don't know. Tell you, you did some reading about how it got made and stuff. I did. So it was really interesting. I was actually impressed by how this movie came together because it has a kind of interesting DC-based backstory. It was made by a former costume designer, Joel Schumacher, who you probably know, he makes, he made Falling Down, St. Elmo's Fire, Lost Boys. So it was a production of Joel Schumacher and Topper Carew, who would go on to be a producer for the sitcom Martin, what we all love. Topper actually came from Boston to go to school at Howard University. And he said, when I'd been here in Boston, I'd probably had one black teacher. At Howard, here comes a black professor with a stack of books in his hands. It was very inspiring. He ended up getting involved with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and doing work for the Resurrection City during the 1968 Poor People's Campaign. And he started the nonprofit 
and Adams Morgan called The New Thing, which introduced Washingtonians to filmmaking. This director was asked to make a movie about Soul Train. That movie did not come to fruition, but they were like, hey, is there anything else that you would like to make? And he said he crafted a story about this struggling underdog multi-ethnic cab company in D.C. that overcame the odds to succeed. And that's essentially how D.C. Cab came to be. And so, as you said, Michael, they did actually film most of it in D.C. They spent about three weeks of their eight-week shoot in D.C., kind of trying to get the feel right. The rest was shot in L.A. So it's like a combination that there are times where you're like, oh, I know that bar. I know that corner. And then you're like, wait, what corner is this? I don't know this corner. And that's probably because it's L.A. They say... I should note that Joel and I spent a bunch of time in D.C. during the writing process. It's thought to be one of the best movies about D.C. because it's so authentically D.C., and I take great pride in that. That is a very sweet sentiment, but I would love to talk about if you think that is actually true, that it's kind of an authentic portrait of D.C. in film. I think there's there's probably some logical holes about D.C. or humanity that you could drive a truck through. But the establishing shots, like the movie opens... And, you know, that's panning around town and there's this uh, this DC cab song playing. You see kids like hitting bucket drums with the Washington Monument as backdrop. You see Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the White House with cars on it and a bus pulls up. These are things that aren't around today. I think if you tried to bucket drum near the Washington Monument, now you would probably be moved along by the Park Service and the Pennsylvania Avenue is closed to traffic. But it does establish this as a a real place. And this, it's a pretty rare Washington set movie that's about working people. In this case, cabbies at this really like rinky-dink cab company. So in in one of the establishing shots, you see see, like the cabs are all on fire because, uh, (laughs) not because someone's burning them, but because they're so poorly maintained. Yeah. Something that I love about the movie is that it does spotlight working people in D.C. And the establishing shots early on where they're trying to show you the routine of these D.C. cabbies, it is, I mean this like in a genuine way, are truly very good. So we see the city through the eyes of this newcomer, uh, Albert Hockenberry. And he's arrived in some like non-glamorous way in Washington from Georgia, where he's from. And he uh, seeks out the owner of DC Cab, the company, uh, who was his dad's, his late father's uh, army buddy from Vietnam. And Albert just wants to be a cabbie too. So you are then introduced to the colorful gang of underdogs at this cab company. You also, there's also a shot of Emerald Cab, which is like their arch enemy. And the guys in Emerald Cab have like sleek velour jackets. <laughs> and from the minute you see them, like, they're the bad guys. We don't like those guys. It's like the, one of my favorite plot devices where it's like, these guys are evil because they're better than us. And like, that's all you need to know. And because they've got matching jackets. Right. But it all establishes that these dudes are underdogs. And you meet these colorful cabbies, including the character played by Mr. T, who always wanted to do something for the kids. And he's very concerned about like the uh, danger of the neighborhood. And there's this one scene, it's shot out front of Bohemian Caverns, which is then like a, you know, it's portrayed as a very dodgy street corner. And in those days was not, you know, U Street was not the, the luxe spot it is today. And there's this like pimp in like a pimp car. But the pimp car is like a open top, like 1920s, like gangster style car. And all the neighborhood kids are like, wow, that's such a great car, including uh, Mr. T's niece, which has him very, very worried about the state of affairs. There's Paul Rodriguez, and he's like the Latin lover. And I say that with all awareness of movie stereotypes included. He wears like a kind of cheesy 70s style suit, and he's always trying to like seduce the ladies, the lady passengers, and they're having none of it. And there's Bill Maher, 
who plays like the kind of college educated and into jazz cabbie. Yeah. Uh, At one point, he makes a reference to he's driving the cab so that he can afford law school. And so it, they don't really flesh his character out. But I, my sense is the same as yours, that he's meant to be this streetwise intellectual who is sees himself as destined for greater things, which I guess is like an HBO show where he's very edgy. So there's like this sense of like, you know, lovable oddballs, but also people maybe with a little bit more going on beneath the surface than the surface level view of them suggests. And they are sort of aware of themselves as like a despised group, like both within the cabbie community where the dudes from Emerald Cab, I cannot stress enough how bad those dudes are, really look down on them. And where the city, Washington, also looks down on them. There's a scene in the Florida Avenue Grill, which in this movie is owned and run by kind of blue collar white people, where Albert Hockenberry, the newcomer, he's making eyes at the waitress and she back at him. And then the proprietor says to him, she says, uh, take your eyes off my granddaughter, cabbie. Like, she, <laughs> like her granddaughter's got better things to do than date some cabbie. Right. But what's so weird is that that's clearly the cabbie hangout. So it's kind of disparaging to what appears to be like 95% of her own clientele. <laughs> this is a, it, it struck me, too, that this was like a poor move. And maybe that's why that family was dispossessed of a Florida Avenue grill. <laughs> yeah, there's a sequel about how that one comment led to them losing proprietorship of Florida <laughs> Avenue grill. So like the first half of the movie is like basically like cab hijinks. There's also a scene I really liked where they pick up this dude at Dulles and and He's really, really drunk. And he says, I need to go to the other airport, National. And then proceeds to like fall asleep in the cab. And so they drive like about 100 yards and are like, all right, here we are at the other airport and let him out and charge him. And uh, this becomes like a moral thing because Albert Hockenberry, our fresh eyed new cabbie, is like, that's not cool. And in exchange for that, his fellow abandons him and he is forced to hitchhike home from Dulles, which in those days, accurately is portrayed as like really being in the middle of nowhere, like a farm country. <laughs> I love how that plot point really relies on the audience knowing DC airports, like, oh, he's at Dulles, <laughs> but he wants to go to National. <laughs> you know, like very specific DC airport humor. My favorite kind of humor. It's time to get dressed up, DC. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree. That's to help raise funds for homelessness in DC. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow. There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. When was the last time you went to the theater? Well, we have a new show for you to check out. The Gala Theater in Columbia Heights is showing the political musical comedy Museum in the Closet, A Vida's Return, which follows Argentine icon Eva Perón to the afterlife as her preserved corpse ignites political scandals, clandestine affairs, and mysterious murders. The show is full of samba, reggae, and tango that will have you tapping your feet nonstop. The show is in Spanish with English surtitles and will run from May 9th through June 9th. 
Get your tickets now at galatheater.org or call 202-234-7174. The actual like plot, as it were, kicks in about halfway through the movie. That there's two things going on at once. One is that some cabbie in Washington has had a famous violinist in his cab who has left a very expensive violin in the trunk and there's a reward. And the owner of DC Cab is like, if I can get this reward, I can save the cab company. Meanwhile, the children of this fancy elite VIP figure are kidnapped and Albert is kidnapped with them. And meanwhile, the city is told that he is somehow in on the plot both the violin reward plot point and the kidnapping plot point feel a little disjointed to me. Like, I understand how some of the reviews were like, it feels like two different movies. It feels like a movie about cabbie hijinks and then a movie about Bad News Bears group kind of getting their comeuppance and then a movie about adventures and like saving the day. It seems like a lot of movies all in one. Right. And I think it was like, let's hire Mr. T and some stand-up comedians to be cabbies and like just let them go for a while. Let them do and their at thing. at some point they came and said, you know, we probably need some sort of device to get this <laughs> across the finish line. Yeah. And Most movies have a plot. This is a spoiler, people. The cabbies get together to figure out the kidnapping because they know that their fellow is going to get blamed. They save the day. The kids are saved. The kidnappers are busted. The DC cab guys at the end, they get some money to fix up the cabs. Mr. T really blings out his cab. And that they all also get their own velour 80s jackets that say DC Cab on them. And at the very end, there's like a city parade in their honor. Like a huge parade in their honor. Like, a huge <laughs> and something one. I think the film is trying to do is that one of the reasons that cabbies are able to say it's a day is being good at knowing DC locations. Like that's definitely like a theme throughout the movie is how important it is to know how to get to the tidal basin at midnight or get from zone to zone. Remember when DC had right. zones? Like and so right. because they're like they only have a little bit of information about where the kids are being held and they're like, oh, where could this be? And just intimate knowledge of D.C. geography is why they are able to save the day. And so it's their unique strength as cabbies that allows them to get this happy ending where they're having this truly massive parade. Like you have never seen a parade this big in your life. And it's for yeah, a it's cab in, company. It's in front of the district building, now the Wilson building. And there's this one shot in the parade. But there's like the Dunbar Band is in the parade and the, and it goes down Pennsylvania past the district building. And there's this uh, upbeat Irene Cara song playing and it's got a happy ending, folks. Yeah, I, that's something that really kind of melted my heart is the like seeing like the Cardozo Band. Like it's it is it does feel like a very D.C. parade and it is fun to see all these different iconic D.C. places to see these to see this ending. Very, very happy ending unfold. And part of me watching this might be way, like I'm reading way too into it. But, you know, being from D.C., I do think the city has a little bit of a quality of people forget about us. People don't respect us as a city and they should. You know, we're just as good as other cities, blah, blah, blah. And I think that that's a bit kind of reflected here that these D.C. cabbies feel very disrespected. And the end of the movie, them getting this recognition from the city, it feels very much like what you know, being from D.C., what I, like a fantasy of what I would like, you know, having our citizenry not be forgotten and overlooked and all of that. It right. almost seems like a like a, a way of that being illustrated on screen, this fantasy of D.C. life. 
problem is with most normal people, and I think you and I are included in this problem, is like, we're kind of boring. Like, we're not like, I don't want anyone to make a movie about me. It's not that exciting. So most of the Washington movies are about like the uh, abnormal people who lead exciting lives as like spies and statesmen and stuff. But this was the rare one that was about normal people. And it actually, I don't know that saying it worked is the right thing to say, but it wasn't, it wasn't like boring. You know? It certainly wasn't boring. And that's something that I like about this movie is that I do think that it's giving us a different view into a different vibe of the city. This is a movie that came out in 1983. The racial and gender politics are, we'll say, a little bit dated. I'll keep it at that. But it is a movie that I think is trying to make a statement about racial solidarity and brotherhood and the connection that working class people have and that like that extends beyond race. I think that's what they're trying to do in their own like backward 1980s way. And I think that it's weird and that there's some problematic language and whatnot. There's also like it's a pretty rare movie in for, for the 80s and maybe even for now that portrays a bunch of white people and black people and others operating in a atmosphere where they're more or less social equals. You know, like Gary Busey says some like racist stuff in the movie, but he's a cabbie just like Mr. T. And at the end, they are all, I think, technical equals in the sense that they all become partners in this company. You know, it's got this this weird tension and it's it's un, unusual in that way. Matt Cohen at the DC says that DC Cab, like one of the things that gets that it gets right about DC is that it's trying to make a point about gentrification because the main character is coming from someplace else to sort of make a better life for himself in DC to have economic opportunities. What do you think about that? I found it a little bit, a little much. And the reason is I, I don't think when this movie was made, anybody could have anticipated what was going to happen in Washington. I think at the time the city was being written off as a place that was doomed. People were always going to move to the suburbs. No one wanted to be in a place like Washington. It was a place for like high crime and poverty. And the only people who could possibly want to be there who had a choice would be like misfits, like these cab guys. And the neighborhood around there is now, obviously, you know, it is a lot of it's shot in Shaw and along U Street. And that's obviously like a really expensive, really transformed neighborhood today. I also think that like a lot of movies, it's shot through the eyes of like a new person because that provides a reason why you're introducing everything. But he was like not a typical newcomer to Washington. He wasn't like trying to get ahead in the government or landing an internship or whatever. He was actually like, it was like an old fashioned, like guy from the sticks goes to the big city and like meets (laughs) wild characters and in the name of economic opportunity, which was like less part of the Washington stereotype then or now. It's not to say it doesn't happen or anything like that. I suspect that no one involved in this looked at Washington and was like, wow, this blue collar, mostly black culture is going to be going away soon because it's going to get gentrified. We better capture it. You know what I mean? I don't know that that's what the (laughs) DCS piece was saying either. Yeah, I'm with you. I think it was an interesting argument, but I think it's a little bit much. And I think, yeah, if, if anything... In the 80s, this was exactly what you said. This is a movie about a country bumpkin fresh off the bus in the big city. I don't think it was a movie that was trying to make a comment about gentrification or what was to come or even was interested in that kind of social or economic or political perspective. I think they were just trying to make a movie that really heavily relied on like tropes that we already know. Right. I mean, it could just as easily have been like Detroit Cab or Dallas Cab or something. It just happened to be in Washington, which, you know, as a Washingtonian, where very little of that stuff happens to take be set here. 
that made it interesting in itself. I read a lot of articles that called this movie the quintessential DC movie, the movie that gets DC right. I don't really agree with that because I, I agree with you that it could be anywhere. It could be Kansas City cab. It could be anywhere cab. But that doesn't mean it's not fun to see these monuments of DC's iconic history. It certainly is exciting to watch this and recognize these spots. And so I don't know that it really has, like, if I were to ask, what do you think this movie is trying to say about DC? Do you have an answer? Right. I have no answer. I think they're trying to say something about, like, humans. But I don't know that they're trying to say something about this particular city, other than this obvious thing that is just as true in a lot of other places, which is that there's, like, a big gap between uh, the people who have like power and influence and the people who nobody notices. Again, it's it's maybe a little more colorfully depicted in Washington because of the status and the buildings with marble and stuff, but it's not, it is this just an essential truth of life in the society. Hey, I think that for when we do these rewatches, we should develop a highly scientific rating system, whether the text in question is likely to raise your DCIQ, which is my sole goal in, in life. Like the factors I was thinking about are like, is the thing any good? Like, is it worth your time? The DC-ness, is it defensible? And the cringe factor. We could somehow do some fancy math with those things. All right. So quality, give me your rating for the person not at all interested in whether there were bucket drums on the mall. I'm using a three-star method as a nod okay. to our flag. I'm going to get this... <laughs> Oh, two, I'm going to give this 1.5 out of three stars. Two feels a little generous. One feels a little cruel. I'm going to be cruel. I, I think uh, <laughs> uh, I think one. Um, what about the uh, that all-important factor? It's DC-ness. Oh, I do love seeing those monuments. And I think they tried. I really think they tried. The fil- Hearing that the filmmakers spent time in DC, I believe that they tried. I'm going to have to go one because other than the monuments and like, gritty urban life full of crime and all of that. Like, I don't, I can't really say it's like very DC. That's me. I don't know. I thought that it's portrayed as a, a city where the core of the culture was black. I thought that was not common at the time. And I thought that that sort of boosted the DC-ness. I, I liked that it was set in Shaw. So I'm going to give it two for that. So as we have noted and alluded to, there's a lot of things in this um movie that might make the modern citizen of 40 years later kind of cringe. Where do those rank with you? Ooh, you are right. There's some cringy, cringy stuff. There's a scene where where someone imitates an Asian passenger that I was like, oh my God, that is bad. I'm going to give it a at 1.5 out of three stars. I look back and I'm like, oh God, what were we thinking? Um, I think on the cringe factor, I would give it a 2 or 2.5. There's a lot of stuff that's kind of tough to watch. And then there's the the mitigating thing there, which is the defensibility. Like, how defensible is this? I gotta say, like, it's not the best movie. I enjoyed watching it. Like, I would say it's worth your time. Like, it's not the best movie out there, but it's fun. Doesn't take itself too seriously. Well acted. It's funny. Has a few laughs. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go solid too. I'm gonna go, I'll go too also. Yes, I think the racism, like the way the cabbies relate to one another you know, it, it takes place in the context of relationships that are quite unusual. And at the time, were quite, I don't know, in a weird backhanded way, progressive. Yeah, I think this movie is in its own backward 1980s way, trying to show a message of racial solidarity and harmony and working class solidarity, even if it does it via racial slurs <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and like cruel racial mockery at times. Yeah. 
Right. I agree with that. Well, anyway, thank you for watching with me. Oh, it was a great way to spend an evening. And it was nice to spend an evening with Mr. T. And before you go, some quick news. The effort to rebuild the Lang pedestrian bridge that used to run over I-295 is facing backlash from residents. The bridge is supposed to be completed in a year and cost $22 million. The Department of Transportation said they were responding to the community's request to rebuild it after it was destroyed by a truck in 2021. If they stopped now, DDOT would pay extensive fines and costs to the contractor. Meanwhile, Mayor Bowser wants to move the Department of Forensic Sciences Crime Scene Science Division under the purview of the police as part of its new budget changes. The division collects, analyzes, and preserves crime scene evidence. However, the crime lab lost its accreditation in 2021 amid concerns over accuracy and compromised prosecutions and has essentially been outsourcing its work since. Some say this contradicts the point of the lab, which was created to reduce dependence on MPD for crime data. And today's DC Life Hack is from reader Kiana B. She sent in this clutch pro tip. A lot of vendors are Filipino and often carry Filipino ingredients and meats. For my fellow Filipinos slash home cooks in the area who can't necessarily get out to Northern Virginia for Filipino markets, Eastern Market is a great and convenient stop. That's all for today here on CityCast DC. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell your friend who you'd watch DC Cab with? Tell them to rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with even more news from around the city. Talk to you then.